with me in your Bibles to Matthew 24. I'll have a little bit of a review for some of you who have missed out uh, of what we've been covering here. We have a lot of scripture to cover, so I don't expect you to remember every <laughs> scripture. Uh, so in fact, you might even want to take some time to just listen to the, the last couple messages and this one over again to sort of get it, because prophetic scripture and lots of scripture at one time it's a hard thing to just absorb all of it uh, I've been studying this for over 40 years and I, I get it but I don't get it so I understand it if you struggle with it it's okay uh, but just keep pecking away you know keep working at it and you will grasp it understanding the times part three uh, and so what is here at the end of 23 and 24 uh, is addressing end time events. It's the study of last things, um, eschatology, or is, what is the Greek word that's used here. And it is the time between two comings of Christ, which would obviously include uh, death, um, the second coming, judgment, the millennial, things of heaven, things of earth, things of hell, all those kinds of things, the judgments that are coming. And so these are the last things. We're in the last days. Now, we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. Now, that's like, what? You said days, not millennia. <laughs> but that's God's perspective. He considers this the last day. We're very close to wrapping up the end of the age, and the disciples understood that. And so I think it's, again, important, when you're reading through and studying prophecy, that you... Um, understand that Jesus really wasn't that concerned about giving detailed outline of all the events uh, that would take place between the two comings. Now, we have actually a more general outline given to us in this portion of Scripture at least. Uh, and, you know, just think about this for a minute. You know, God is not obligated to share uh, all the things that would happen with exact precision. He's not obligated to share that. And he doesn't for reasons that only he knows. He's reserved it for himself. Even when Jesus was here as a man, he, he didn't know the day or the hour. The Father reserved it for him. So there's just something about our limitations that God found it wise and most loving to deprive us of any exact, precise things that would happen. There are only a few things that are along those lines. All the other things are somewhat ambiguous. And you have to take a certain position on things. You, you sort of bring it all together and throw everything into one prophetic basket and, well, it's just the end, the end when Jesus comes back and then it's over. Or you split it out like some of us and you sort of separate it out. But we have to take a position... I take the position that seems to be most logical, even though God's ways are not always logical, but the way that I can understand it uh, the best. So um, not everybody would agree with this. And again, the study of prophecy is not something that we all have to be in unity over in the sense that you might take it this way, I might take it that way. Well, it doesn't really matter. In one sense, we're all going to be in heaven together. It's not one of the essentials. Are you saved? Are you washed in the blood of Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the second coming? 
You know, these are, some of these other things are essential to our salvations, but how and what view we take on prophecy, not so much. Um, <clears throat> it's amazing, you know, God speaks of things that are not as though they were because he knows they're going to be. None of us have that ability. And I think I find that just amazing that he sees the past and the future simultaneously and it's complete. And the picture is completely clear to him. And so uh, when we study prophecy too, I, I think it's <laughs> it's kind of like putting one of those 10,000 piece puzzles together. <laughs> Some of you are frowning. <laughs> because it can, really, it can really frustrate you. You know, and you're putting those puzzles together, it, you know, there are those that are really easy. Like for me... I go right for the ones that have a straight edge. Because <laughs> I know where those go. I go around the outside. <laughs> I got that one. <laughs> you know, and then you get into the different colors as well as the different shapes. And especially if you're working with those little guys, like, you know, really small, miniature-sized pieces. I think the study of prophecy is somewhat like that. We've got the straight edge pieces like, you know, Matthew 24... Luke 21, that sort of give you an outline of certain things. You get it. Okay, yeah, that goes there. Okay. But it's some of these other things. And I'm going to mention some of these other things, these little pieces. You know, and, and, you know when you're putting the puzzle together, you try to force them. You ever try to do that? that, that I think that'll, that'll work. That'll really work. No, oh, I guess it won't work. You know, it, it, we, but this is what we try to do sometimes. We try to fit... The pieces of the scripture, the prophetic things that we think, well, that should go right here. And my, my view's right. You're wrong. But mine's right. And then we go only to find out that, well, I guess it doesn't really fit there. So this is what I'm saying. It's too ambiguous sometimes to really get a handle on. And why is that? Because I don't believe the Lord wants us to understand it all. Because if we understand, <clears throat> understand it all, it would lead to complacency. The God understands our fallenness. He understands our nature. No matter what we get into in the study of Scripture, our focus is always to remain the Lord Jesus Christ. Look for Jesus in the Scriptures. You can spend 25 years studying prophecy, and at the you know, because I've done it, and at the end of 25 years, you'll have be probably been not much better off of still trying to get those pieces together. Because you just don't have enough knowledge. You don't understand all that you need to understand to grasp it. And so God has left that ambiguity to keep us centered on him. You, you know this. On this side, you know this here. It's like, okay, well, <clears throat> let's just stay with the Lord. And it's like that in everything in life. You don't venture too far either direction. Your focus is always to be on the Lord. <clears throat> you know, there's so many things that we can get caught up in Scripture. You know, I know people that, you know, I mean, I kind of look at these parachurch organizations are sort of like that. They specialize in certain things. You know, there's people that have ministries of uh, working with people in bondage and deliverance ministries. And you can get kind of get caught up in demonology. And, you know, I think it's okay. And I think it's important to understand our enemy and how he attacks. But, I mean, if you make that your focus, Jesus is to be the focus. Because that's what leads us to love. 
in all of our things. Yes, God wants people to be delivered. Yes, God wants to have us to have hope for the future. But we're not to divide over these things that we may have differences over. So you're free to believe the way you want to believe, but let's kind of look at this portion of Scripture here. And for the sake of time, I'm trusting that you're familiar with this portion of Scripture. And it really kind of started in verse 37 of chapter 23 when Jesus is pronouncing the woes that are going to come upon the city and upon the leadership for their rebellion. And he's brokenhearted. God wanted to just wrap his arms around the city, wrap his arms around the nation, as he says, as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but they would not. They were willingly obstinate and had turned their hearts against God, and they rejected Christ, considering him to be demon-possessed. And so now they were going to suffer judgment. Verse 38 of 23. Woe, your house is left to you desolate. And Jesus said, you shall not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this passage here, uh, Matthew 24, again, is a warning. It is an exhortation that comes with the prophetic picture here, that you and I might remain faithful to God despite what goes on, despite persecution, despite troublous times that might come, we're to remain faithful. God expects us to remain faithful to Him. God expects us to be loyal to Him. After all, He's faithful to us. He's loyal to us. So no matter what we go through, it isn't as though God owes us a soft, cushy ride from earth to heaven. Where's that written? I haven't found it yet. He, but he did promise that he'd be with us uh, in that ride, and I'm glad of that uh, scripture. And so what happens and what's supposed to happen in the life of a believer is that our faith in God through our trials and our love for God and our love for one another is to grow. God uses the trials in that way to develop us and to grow us and to mature us in our faith. And so this uh, passage gives us personal responsibilities of things that we're not to do and things that we are to do because we are obligated to be, as I said, faithful to God. Uh, We need the ability, as Jesus says here, to recognize false prophets, verse 4 and verse 11. And this is chapter 24. We need faithful endurance during rough times, even to the point where we may be killed for our faith. We need to be, remain faithful to him. Verse 9. We need to be steadfast in proclaiming the gospel. Never stop sharing your testimony. Never stop sharing the gospel. The fact is, that I actually believe that if you really study prophecy, it will lead you to that logical end. I need to get the word out because Jesus is coming soon. And if he isn't coming soon, you're going to die soon. We're all going to die. We need to be ready. So there's this whole thing of getting the gospel message out. Uh, That'd be verse 14. And then uh, again, verse 23 and 26, don't be deceived. We're living in a time of disinformation. And you can easily be ripped off and lied to, not only by the press, but by other people. And within the church, uh, there are false teachers and false prophets. And so let's, let's not waste our time, in a sense, trying to figure out when all this is going to happen and set some type of date for Jesus to come back. Uh, why waste time on trying to understand you, uh, something that you have not been given the ability to understand? Now, in part, yes, but not completely. And so uh, 
moving along here. <clears throat> we already know that there are two comings of the Messiah. Most of us are familiar with that. How, do, how can I prove that from this text? Well, as I pointed out earlier, uh, as you begin chapter 21, and the tri- what we call Palm Sunday, they had the triumphant entry, remember? And they were coming down and, and they quoted Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, Jesus is quoting it again. At the, at, after, after he's been there for a few days and been ministering in the temple. And then this whole, the, then the rejection sets in. And so he quotes this same scripture. You're not going to see me. You'll see me no more. I'm here now, but you're not going to see me anymore until you say, until there's a repentance among the nation. And you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So apparently, at some future point from when Jesus was talking about then, he would come again. Makes sense to me. I hope it does to you. You get what I'm saying? (laughs) Good. Now, again, let's look at the three questions here at the beginning of the chapter. Just, again, by way of review. They're walking out of the temple, verse 1. And the disciples, you know, they just like hanging. Who doesn't want to hang with Jesus, right? <laughs> hey, man, isn't, isn't this an awesome temple, Lord? Like, maybe they're just trying to lighten it up because it was a pretty intense little situation there while he was teaching. And those guys were, like, giving him the look, you know. And so they, maybe they were just kind of nervous. And they were just trying to lighten it up. Hey, Jesus, let's change the subject. <laughs> Aren't these buildings cool? <laughs> I don't really know what was going on, but they asked him, and but he wasn't going for it. <laughs> yeah, you see, the, yeah, that's pretty cool, but you see these things, they're going down. They're going to burn. One stone shall not be left turned upon another, and they're like, whoa, whoa. And so now they get to the Mount of Olives, which is a place where he'd love to go and relax. The gardens that are there, great little place nice ambiance quietness especially when you think about this time of the year the Passover about two million people present you just want to get out of the rush so you get the atmosphere so they're kicked back they're sort of relaxing and then the disciples are were thinking and they asked Jesus these questions when will these things be when are when is this temple coming down when are these buildings going to be destroyed? When's this going to happen, Jesus? He answered those in that question in verses 15 through 28, which we covered last week. And then the second question, what will be the sign of your coming? Well, uh, we're going to answer that one uh, today. And then the third question was, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Well, that was the first question that he asked that he answered uh, in verses 3 through 14. And so, again, once it's important that we understand two important things. One, that the destruction of the temple and the end of the age are not the same events. And when we, people say the end of the age, it does not mean the destruction of the earth. The earth is not going to be destroyed. Now, I know you, you think, wait, 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 wait. Well, in second, you know, Peter talks about the elements melting with a fervent heat. Well, yeah, that's going to happen. But that doesn't mean that the earth is going to be blown up and turn into a vapor. 
It's more of a process of remodeling, a, a renovation, if you will. There's going to be somewhat of a renovation, like a mini remodel, so to speak, when Jesus comes back the second time and establishes his kingdom for the thousand year reign. But there will still be people here in the flesh with fallen natures like we have now. But from what I gather, those of us who have gone on before, part of the church, and those that are glorified saints, will be on earth as well, serving with them. Now that sounds kind of like, whoa, sketch. Well, that seems to be what the Bible indicates. But then what we do know, at the end of that thousand year reign, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, a complete renovation, and the curse will be lifted. It will be like it was in the beginning, in a sense, when God made it the Garden of Eden, and it will be glorious. And so these are the things that, that are coming, and it's important to keep some of this stuff clear in our minds so that as we are going through the Scriptures, we can kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together and not slash them, you know, like we'd like to, because we have certain biases, right? And so... The third question, verses 26 through 31, because I'm back, backing up a little bit to, to bring it into context. What will be the sign <clears throat> of your coming? He's answered two out of the three questions, and now he's going to answer the one we've all been waiting for. <laughs> when are you going to come back? Well, there's some people think, and they can give you 89 reasons or 90 reasons why Jesus is coming back in, you know, this year. Well, no, nobody knows the day or the hour. So when will these things be? Well, it will, let's look at the description here in verse 26. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the son of man, coming of the Son of Man be. For where the Ever the carcass is, the eagles will be gathered together. So, from this description, we understand that the coming of Christ will be sudden. Uh, there isn't going to be um, an announcement coming over CNN telling us that Jesus is about to come back. You won't, it's it's going to happen. You know, like, can you predict lightning? You know, there's a storm going on, it just happens. You can, like, see it, boom, and then you hear its result, the thunder. So it'll come without an announcement, sudden. It'll be final. It isn't going to be like, well, he's only here for a short time. No, it's here. He's here to stay this, coming, this time. Now, the other thing that's important here, according to what we've read, it will be after the abomination that brings desolation. Now, I'm backtracking a little bit because last week I sort of glossed over this and I don't want to gloss over this because this is, again, a, uh, an important principle uh, to grasp when it comes to scriptures uh, and prophecy. Um, when there was an Old Testament prophecy given, it was generally accepted that that prophet was speaking to that contemporary scene and God was giving those people a message that belonged to them and to their generation. But sometimes that message had meanings of things that would happen later on in history. It's sort of what uh, scholars refer to as a double fulfillment. And, and that's, that's, there's scholars that don't buy that. 
they don't buy that at all and and that they're free to choose that they're still my brother because i think there's truth to that and you and you'll understand why as we work our way through this and so i'm going to bring up some of those scriptures here in a little bit to sort of give you that but apparently the one that jesus is talking about here in daniel's prophecy uh there's three particular places that this abomination of desolation uh, is spoken of and so he's referring to Daniel the prophet because what's going to happen in the future from his point of view there you know around 29 AD or whatever year it was that he was crucified he knows that in the next couple decades Rome is coming 70 AD and they're going to level this place and it will be like the abomination that brought desolation in the time that Daniel prophesied this. So he's comparing it. Now, you can write this down, and I'm going to keep moving. Daniel 9.27, it says, On the wing of the abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. Daniel 11.31, They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate, and there shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But God... Who knows, uh, but those people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Daniel 12:11. And from the time of that burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes the desolation is set up, there shall be 1290 days. So there's these three scriptures that talk about the abomination that brings desolation. And we know that one of those abomination of desolation was fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes and now he was going to Egypt and he sort of was outgunned and he was ticked because he was humiliated and this was what the history books tell us and then so he went back to to Israel and when he got there he just took his anger and his vengeance out upon the Jews he went into the temple and he offered a pig on the altar and so that was obviously something that was insulting to God and that's referred to as the abomination of desolation. And yet, Jesus is using this to refer to what the Romans would do. And so when we have uh, the Roman army and the soldiers coming in and destroying the temple, and Titus standing in the holy place, a place that was forbidden for anyone to go except the priest, the holy sanctified place of God, the holy place, he defiled it. This is an abomination. Uh, in the sight of God. And so this is sort of, uh, again, you see the double fulfillment there. You had a near fulfillment in Antiochus Epiphanes, then you have this later fulfillment with Rome. Now, apparently, there's going to be yet another one of these that happens in the future. Turn with me, you know, because I want to wake you up. I know this is heady, some of this. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, 1 through 12. I will not uh, read the entire passage. And again, this is another one of those puzzle pieces that some people like to just throw away and put it underneath the table where you can't ever find it. It's really not part of it. It's something else. Okay, whatever you think. (laughs) Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, second coming, hello, and our gathering together unto him, we ask you not to be shaken in mind, nor troubled either by spirit or by word, or by letter as 
from us. As though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless there's a falling away first. And the man of sin is revealed. The son of provision. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. All that is worshipped. So that he sits as God in the temple of God. Showing himself that he is God. And so you, this would tell us a couple different things. One, that there's going to be a temple built before Jesus comes back. Another temple. It tells us that in part of the temple, the holy place, a man is going to go in there and set and proclaim himself to be deity, to be God, to be Yahweh. Uh, that is an abomination that will bring desolation. So, again, we see the Antiochus Epiphanes, we see Rome, and then yet we see, so it's, you kind of get this telescopic view with this double fulfillment uh, type of thing. And so that's why I sort of think there's something to that, uh, regardless of what some other scholars um, may view it as. I think it's important that we, we don't miss the obvious here. The subtlety of the enemy. The fact that we're going to have false prophets and false teachers. People are going to be proclaiming themselves to be God. This, Jesus said this was going to happen after the, the crucifixion. In fact, there was a great, a great amount of false prophets that arose uh, between the crucifixion and 70 AD. There, were, there, there was tumultuous times. And that's why those scholars who study history think that everything that we're talking about here in chapter 24 has already been fulfilled. And to a great degree it has. I can't argue with that. But again, there's, I know one thing. Jesus didn't come back in the first century. Right? So, so there's something to more that's going to be going on. And so this is important for us to grasp this. Verse 27 tells us that his coming will be without an announcement. He will come unexpectedly. Verse 27. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the same man be. And for, again, uh, wherever the carcasses is, the eagles shall be gathered together. Those two verses tell us he's coming without announcement unexpectedly in an unpredictable time and, and the result of his coming will be the death of his enemies. It isn't going to be this meek and mild lamb. Revelation refers to it as the wrath of the lamb. Jesus is coming back with an attitude of judgment because of the rebellion and the harm that these people have caused for believers in persecuting and killing people and their destruction of the earth and their idolatry. This is actually what's described in the book of Revelation of why God is bringing his judgment upon the earth. Verse 29 says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, see, here again, this is the wording that is hard. When we think immediately, we think, well, like, as soon as service is over, we're going to, you know, immediately go to the back and have something to munch, right? <laughs> immediately. Fact is, could you hurry up? I'm kind of hungry right now, you know. <laughs> but 
immediately may not mean immediately like we perceive it to be. You know, and I'm not just saying this is necessarily true, but when God says immediately or that he's going to do a quick work upon the earth, I mean, his immediately and his quick is a different measurement than mine. I mean, you know, he says it's a quick work. Well, it's like, we've been here a few thousand years, Lord. That's not so quick from my point of view. But from his point of view, it's it's only been a few days, I guess. So you get you get the idea here. But it's after the tribulation. And so I, I'm of the opinion, I'm going to slip this in here. I'm of the opinion that the tri- great tribulation period is Ill, is laid out for us in the book of Revelation. Chapter 6 through 19 is a description of that time that Jesus described as like no other time that the history of the earth has ever experienced. And that so that's, that's sort of where I, I, I put that. Now, along those lines... Um, after the, the, this tribulation period uh, here, I, I want to back up to and point this out to you in verse 20. Verse 20 and 21. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time no nor ever shall be. I think there's a gap, a time space there. So he's talking to the contemporaries right there. When you see the abomination that brings desolation, run, run for your life. But then this great tribulation, we we know there was great tribulation there. But the tribulation that was recorded then is not the tribulation that's going to happen in Revelation 6 through 19. So there seems to be, again, that double applicable situation here. The double fulfillment of a prophecy. You understand the minuteness, how small these little pieces are, and the different colored, and you're trying to put this together? This is not an easy task to do. The study of prophecy is arduous. It, It takes a lot of effort, and it's tiring. And so if you don't quite get it, Keep working with it. The more you become familiar with it, just like the more time you put into putting the puzzle together and you get sort of used to these things and you get kind of get the flow of it, you'll be able to put some things together and, and the piece, pieces of the puzzle will begin to make sense. Uh, so having said that, let's continue to move here. In verse 29, it tells us uh, the sun will be darkened, the moon will uh, not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Not only will there be, be things happening on the earth, this great tribulation, but in the celestial world and in the spirit realm, things are going to be happening that have never happened before. Satan's kingdom is going to be completely destroyed. Hallelujah for that. It's going to happen. And so again, as you, if you're familiar with, if you've read through the book of Revelation, which we don't have time for, you, you, this is what we, it sounds like uh, is being described here. And so I'm going to kind of leave that for another study, and let's move on to verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. 
And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What is the sign of the Son of Man? Well, I've been studying that and I still don't know any more than I did when I started studying it. It's one of those things like we really don't know for sure. Now, we have some ideas, um, but it's going to appear in heaven. We do know that's what it says there. There's a parallel passage uh, along those lines, uh, Luke 17, 24, if you want to read that one. But I find that I am leaning towards the reference that Jesus gave to the high priest when he was on trial. And turn with me to Matthew 26, 63. He's on trial. And Jesus was, as a sheep before his shears is dumb, just didn't say anything. Jesus kept silent. 26, 63. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Is this the sign of the Son of Man? Very well could be. We know that the earth dwellers are going to mourn, as Jesus said there in verse 30. But turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, verse 11. Because Jesus is quoting this. And they, Daniel 7, verse 11 to 14. Daniel 7, 11 through 14. Now you understand why I said you might want to take the time to, to re-listen to this. We've covering a lot of scripture here and I get it but it's just it's what it calls for so I'm stretching you a little bit Daniel 7 11 through 14 I watched and then because of the sound of pompous words which the horn was speaking I watched until the beast was slain its body destroyed and given to the burning flame as far as the rest of the beast they had their dominion taken away yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time and I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not be taken away. His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now again, this is pregnant with a meaning, and it, it really brings should bring some clarity. Uh, we know that after the destruction or the abomination of desolation in 70 A.D., uh, Jesus did not return. Jesus has not returned to the earth. Jesus is not here. His kingdom is not established on the on the earth. But but he said the kingdom of heaven is among you. Is is here? Well, yes. The kingdom is here, but not yet. It's that kind of thing. There are a number of things like that in Scripture. It's here now, but not quite in its full, fullness. So we have the kingdom of God in another place within us. God is working kingdom principles in His citizenry as we live on this earth. That's, again, that growth and development of our faith. But God, at some point in, 
future from this point in time. Jesus is going to come in power and great glory, and he will establish his rule and reign. This is what it says here. Not all people's nations and languages serve Jesus right now, but they're going to. During that thousand-year reign of Christ, people are going to serve the Lord, and his kingdom will never pass away. Now, this whole idea of the sign of the Son of Man, I'm, I'm really intrigued by it, and I wish I really could understand it better. But I, I think it has something to do with the throne of God. Now, you can there's a couple of prophets. Ezekiel chapter 1 describes Ezekiel's vision that he had. Uh, and, you know, the wheels in the middle of the wheel and, and these four creatures, you know, the, the lion, the, the ox, and the eagle, and the man, and that whole thing. And, you know, wow, it went this way and that way. And, uh, like, <laughs> it just makes you dizzy. I wish I was an artist, right? And then, but if you compare that with Revelation 4 and 5, which is another vision that John had into the throne. And there's the rainbow is, is, it the, is it the throne of Christ coming to the, in the glory that surrounds all that and where he's going to set up his dominion on the earth? I don't know. Is that the sign? Well, they're going to be seeing something coming. Is it, are they going to see what Ezekiel saw? Are the inhabitants of the earth, are, are their eyes going to be open to what John saw in Revelation 4 and 5, this moving of the authority and the throne of God to the earth where Jesus will reign? I don't know. Possibly tells us during this time that the angels are going to be dispatched. They're going to sound the trumpet. And they're going to gather the elect from the, all over the earth. And so, um, so there's, there, there you go. You, you've got something to take home and figure out. <laughs> work, on, work on the puzzle when you get home, okay? <laughs> uh, so, again, I, you have to take... To arrive at certain conclusions, you have to take a position. You're going to read the scriptures and you're going to try to make sense of it. And so you're going to start categorizing things. And um, as I shared this with the class uh, yesterday morning, uh, the inductive class, you know, Bible, uh, one Bible scholar says, you know, there are simply those who think they're impartial and then there are those who... Th- no, they're not. <laughs> so I guess I'm not really impartial. I, I have certain convictions that I think it's going to be this way because it makes the most sense to me. But then there's other people that say, I don't care about the puzzle. I don't care about prophecy. Leave me alone. And they go their way. And that's up to them. And we're going to get into this next week. I don't think that's really a, a position to take. The Lord is coming back. And we have a responsibility. And there's something about having that conviction in your heart that creates hope. It's the great hope that our king is coming back. There is a sense that God could come back at any point in time, the imminent return of Christ, that creates a a fear of the Lord in a good way, that I need to be ready, that I need to be about my master's work. And so there's a that certain thing that sort of keeps you centered in the Lord that, that I think is good. So I'm not saying that the study of prophecy um, should be ignored by any stretch, but I don't think it, it were to obsess over it either. And then just to make sure that I have you completely overwhelmed, I'm going to go to another scripture. <laughs> Daniel chapter 9. Because um, there's, there's 
you've probably read enough prophecy books or checked out some stuff that you're confused. And it's like, how do they get this seven-year period? Where does this seven-year tribulation? Because nowhere in the Bible does it say that there is a seven-year tribulation period. It doesn't use those words, but it is described. And you think, well, where does that come from? Well, it's out of this passage in Daniel. Daniel uh, chapter 9. In beginning, actually, let's begin in verse 20. Now, this is Daniel. I was speaking and praying and confessing the sin, my sin and sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, which would probably be Jerusalem. Yes, and while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in a vision at the beginning, being caused to f- fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the commandment went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that the going forth from the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the prince of the people of the prince who shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined for he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the abominations shall make shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined and it is poured out on the desolate. A lot of words. It would be good for you to spend some time there to get, become really familiar with, with, with this. But what do we have here? Well, we have the who. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Anybody want to help me with that? Who, who would be your people? Israel, absolutely. Who, what would be your holy city? So we're talking about Israel, or we're talking about Jerusalem. We got the why and the when. It is to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Did that happen? Has that happened? Well, it's not over, but there has been a way made. We know that for sure that we aren't experiencing everlasting righteousness, are we? So this vision is yet future. It's in its fulfillment. To seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. And I believe that that will be at the coming of Christ. The when. Well, this is the, this is the, the, you know, the question, right? <laughs> know therefore, this is verse 25, seven weeks from the time of the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. So Cyrus gave the 
and this is at the end of Jeremiah, uh, or in Jeremiah, we're told that they would spend 70 years there. And so that's really how Daniel kind of figured out what was going on uh, as he was studying the scriptures. And he began to pray over that because he read, hey, wait, we've been here. I'm, 80, I'm 85 now, and I've been here like, you know, 70 years. And like, this needs to happen here, according to the scripture. That, that kind of thing was going on. And so the angel explained it to him. There would be seven weeks. Uh, now, we probably need to to um, explain what that is. Seventy weeks. This word week is, uh, a week in scripture is known as seven years. So this is where the seven years comes about. So a week is uh, 70, a week is seven days, or, uh, uh, but it's seven prophetic years. So this whole vision would be a, a, a time period of 490 years. 70 times 7. Interesting thought. Did any Have you ever heard that out of anybody else? What did Jesus say to Peter about forgiveness? What is God saying to his people Israel and to Jerusalem? He's pretty merciful. He's going to forgive them. He's going to restore the nation of Israel. It's important things, but I, I, divert, uh, I digress a bit there. So we have seven weeks or 49 years to restore and build Jerusalem. Well, that happened uh, under Nehemiah and Ezra. Cyrus gave the, the decree. They went back and they began to rebuild Jerusalem. And then another 62 weeks from that period of time would elapse. This is the prophetic time clock. And who came on the scene? Jesus came on the scene. And what happened to him? He was cut off, according to verse 26. Not for himself, but for the sins of the people. So that part has, has been fulfilled. Seventy first seven weeks, and then the next 62 weeks. So 483 years of this prophetic time clock have been fulfilled in the first coming and rejection of Christ. Are you, are you tracking? We're, we're all good with this? So that has led us to believe that there remains a one week or one seven year period that remains to be fulfilled. And again, many scholars believe, and I'm in, I'm in agreement with this, that that would be that time period of Revelation 6 through 19. You know, as it's described in there. So um, the decree was given in 4, 445 B.C. by Cyrus. This would be Second Chronicles 36, 22 and 23, and Ezra 1. And the city was built in troublous times. You remember when they finished the wall? What were, what were in the hands of the workers? A sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. And they were finishing that wall. So we're talking about troublous times. Now, this middle of the week, verse 27, this covenant for one week, this middle of the week, apparently this is when this second Thessalonians individual, as I see it, that we described here earlier, in the midst of the week, he goes into the temple, proclaims himself to be Yahweh. And that is an abomination. And that's what opens up what we refer to as the wrath of God the last half of that seven-year period in the book of Revelation. So, hopefully, you're not too overwhelmed by all this information. But 
And you again go, we have the signs of the, what we're supposed to experience between the two comings. And let's not forget what they were. Let's keep it simple. It would be a time of deception. It would be a time of war. It would be a time that the people of the earth will experience natural disasters. It would be a time of persecution. That's what Jesus said. It would be a time of lawlessness. False prophets would deceive people. Many, not just a few. There would be lawlessness because of the love of many would grow cold. It would be a time for you and I to have endurance. No matter what kind of trials or what kind of persecutions or sufferings we might have to endure, God has called us to be faithful and to be strong and to receive grace to make it through. But also be a time for evangelism. Keep getting the word out because time is short. So these are important things. Again, a lot of head knowledge here. Hopefully you've been able to absorb the exhortation to, to be ready and to be anxious in the sense that the Lord is coming soon. And, and it should encourage us all to be all that the Lord wants us to be. And I, I can't think of a better way to end a study like this than with communion. And I, uh, the, the team is going to come here, and, and, but in a couple minutes, not quite yet. Um, I wanna, I'm just going to read some scripture here. As if you had had enough, right? <laughs> and what they what this is is, is this it's it's his passion, and I, and I'm as I'm reading these scriptures, I want you to think about how much God loves you, and what he the, the lengths that God has gone to, to bring reconciliation. With us and Himself, His love is so great, and these are this is just a putting together about six, six or eight scriptures, and I just want to read through uh, these passages describing his passion, his commitment to you, his commitment to me. Luke 8, 51, Now it came to pass that when the time had come for him to be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Mark 8, 31, He began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spoke this word openly. John seven ten seven, And Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in, and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, that they may have it more abundantly. For I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As my Father knows me, even so I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep, therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself and I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Mark fourteen twenty one. The Son of Man indeed goes on just as it was written of him. Acts eight thirty two, which is from Isaiah 53. He was as a sheep led to slaughter and as a lamb before shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. John 19.10 And then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus answered, You could have no power against me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And Acts 2.23 Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Matthew 27, 20. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And so in Mark fifteen fifteen, Pilate says, in wanting to gratify the crowd, he released Barabbas to them and delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple. They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him, put on his own clothes on him, and led him out to be crucified. Philippians 2.5 Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, he became in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In Romans 5, 6, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 15, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And so there we have a compilation of what Jesus was willing to do, what He was foreordained to do. There was no fear in Christ. He set His face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He knew what was befalling Him. And again, He asked us to just simply love Him in return. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this incredible plan. There's really not much for us to do other than to believe you, to trust you, and to walk in obedience to you. You're really not requiring that much of us, Lord, but what you do require of us is to be faithful. So we ask, Lord, that you would put that kind of spirit within us because we know that in our flesh there dwells no good thing. We know that within our own nature there isn't enough strength, grace, or anything else that could do anything that would please you. We just simply come, Lord, with empty hands. We lift them in faith. We ask you to fill these empty 
cups overflowing with your presence, your goodness, your grace. And Lord, as we take this cup, this cup of suffering, this cup of your blood, and we partake of the elements, Lord, this juice and this bread, we remember, Lord, of the incredible price that you paid to make this a reality for us. And we say thank you. And so as the fellows pass out the elements, feel free to take them as you feel led after examining your own heart and just thank the Lord. And as you take that cup, if you're hurting in any way, if your heart is broken, I want you to remember that not only is this a cup of forgiveness, it's a cup of healing. In the redemption of Christ, all our needs are met. And so whatever your need might be, just remember that as you drink that cup, he's provided it for you. And so you do that in the privacy of your own heart. May God bless you.